You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 256. Failure doesn't kill you. It increases your desire to make something happen. Kevin Costner. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters, David Goyer, from who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouras, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Now, guys, today I have a special treat for you. We have legendary film director Kevin Reynolds. Now, Kevin started his career with the classic Fandango, starring an unknown little actor by the name of Kevin Costner. He later created the worldwide box office smash, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, followed up by the misunderstood Waterworld, which many people think was the biggest bomb of all time, uh, but it actually was very far from it and became one of the most profitable IPs in the Universal Studios library. And he was responsible for directing one of my favorite films of all time, The Count of Monte Cristo, among many other films he has directed. Now, it was an absolute joy and honor talking to Kevin because we got into the weeds about one of my favorite films growing up, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, as well as Waterworld, Count of Monte Cristo, how he got his start with his short film, Proof, and how he came up with the story for the 1980s classic, Red Dawn. We also discussed politics on set, a lot of the stuff that goes behind the scenes of directing one of the biggest hits of the 90s, as well as one of the biggest perceived bombs of the 90s, and so, so much more. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kevin Reynolds. I'd like to welcome the show, Kevin Reynolds. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Uh, I am uh, a big fan of your work uh, for many, many years. Um, some of your films, specifically uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, had very big impact on my life because um, I, uh, I was working at a video store back then. 
<laughs> I I remember putting together the standee for Robin Hood. <laughs> oh wow, you're dating yourself, Alex. I I am. I am. I well, the gray hairs date me more and more every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so before we get started, um, how did you get into the business? Uh, well, that's a bit of a long story, but it I you know originally I was a lawyer. I I always loved film. Uh, what I really liked was to write. I wrote since I was like a kid. Um, but you know, a career in the film business just seemed too far fetched. So I followed a responsible career path and went to law school, even though I didn't like it. And I practiced for a couple of years. I was in Austin university of Texas, which had a fabulous facility. And the nice thing about being a lawyer was I had some money so I could, uh, I could go in. They had a great facility. I could pay for film. I could do stuff. I could, I could pay to do movies. So that's really where I kind of educated myself. Initially, it was at uh, University of Texas. And while I was there, one of the visiting professors was uh, an old Hollywood director named Edward Dimitrik. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of the Hollywood 10. And I uh, talked to him and said, look, I, I think this is really what I want to pursue because I was practicing the daytime. I was staying up till two o'clock at night at UT um, and working on movies. And after about a year of that, I said, I got to make a decision here. So I talked to him. And I said, I want to I want to go to film school at uh, USC. And he said, why? And I said, well, I, I want to be a director. And he said, it's the toughest job in the world. And I said, no, no, no. I said, I really want to do this. And, you know, I've been practicing a lot. I really want to do this. He said, you don't understand. It's the toughest job in the world. He said, you've got a good career here being a, a lawyer. He said, don't do it. And, you know, I, I said, no, I, I want to. So anyway, he gave me a letter of introduction. I flew out and met Mort Zarkoff, who's the chairman. And uh, I applied and I got accepted. And uh, the next day I quit my job. Oh. And uh, yeah. <laughs> and like a month later, I packed everything up in a car and moved to L.A. and started film school. I had like three thousand dollars to my name. And uh, it was, you know, taking a big chance. And I was there for two years. Uh Loved every minute of it. I, I realized this is really what I'm meant to do. It was 24-7 for two years. Um, what, did your, what, of, what did your parents say? If I don't mean to interrupt you, but what did your parents say? Well, Four or I'll, five. Never forget, I'll never forget the look on their faces <laughs> as I got in my car you know, to drive away to L.A. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, but they didn't say, no, you can't do this. They were just deeply concerned as well. They should be, you know, as I would have been, you know, with my kid. Anyway, so uh, I get there, like I said, for two years. It was great. Worked on movies. Um, my goal was to leave USC and have a screenplay I could sell and a movie I could show people. So at the end of the two years, I, I was very fortunate. I got to do what's called a 580, which was the highest level of film at USC. And it was this little movie called Proof. And at the same time, I was writing my thesis screenplay with something called Ten Soldiers, which ultimately became the movie Red Dawn. And um, um, I finished the film. And I the next week, I got really lucky. I met this guy who I'd known at UT. He was working as an agent at, uh, at William Morris on somebody's desk. And he'd just been promoted agent. So he read my script and said, sure, I'll represent you. And I was his first client. His name's Mike Simpson. We're like best friends. Anyway, uh, and so I said, hey, would you send this movie, see if you can send it to Steven Spielberg? He said, okay. <laughs> so like two weeks later, I'm still at USC, 
and I'm out in the courtyard and one day and, and um, Mort Zarkov comes out in the courtyard and he goes, can you come here? And I walk in his office, he puts his arm around me. He goes, Steven Spielberg's office is on the phone. They want to talk to you. I, okay. <laughs> so it was Kathy Kennedy. And she wow. goes, uh, Steven watched your movie and he really liked it. He'd like you to come in and talk to him. I, I think I can find time for that. So I, uh, I went in the next day, met with Steven. He couldn't have been nicer. He was in the midst of shooting E.T. at the time. And we talked for a long time, and I went back to my crappy little apartment in Studio City. And the next day, I get this phone call from Kathy Kennedy, and she goes, uh, Hi, Steven's making arrangements for you to expand your student film into a feature. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> so I literally, I just sat in the chair for like a half an hour, and I picked up, and I called her back, and I said, Could you say that again? <laughs> I, I did not believe her. She just laughed. And uh, he did. He did. He went, he, you know, he, he went to Warner's and um, got him to make what became Fandango. And it was the expanded version of that short film at USC Proof. And that plus uh, selling uh, my script that became Red Dawn. That's how I got started. It was, uh, you know, it, it, it was. Uh, things like that don't really happen. No, you are. That is a. Um... Man, that is that is a lottery ticket. Uh, yeah. That is a lottery ticket times two, because yeah. you you sold your first script out of film school, and a short film you made got the eye of Steven Spielberg, arguably the biggest at that time, easily the biggest director in the world. Now one of the most legendary directors in the world, and he calls he calls you out of film school. Hey, can you come and me? I mean, it's an insane story. I mean, I'd heard this story a little bit because I I I love hearing these kind of origin stories of, you know, of accomplished directors. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, but this is, you know, and this is, I think what people hold on to so much sometimes film directors hope for this and it doesn't happen. It's myself. I just, I couldn't believe it. It's like, how could this happen? I never expected to be that fortunate. And you know, my whole philosophy about um, success in the film business, I guess in any business, is it's, a, it's about a third talent, and it's about a third hard work, and it's about a third luck, and uh, not necessarily in that order. So, <laughs> yes. I was extremely lucky. Now, um, going back to your short film, Proof, um, which I saw, by the way, and it was fantastic. I, 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 found, I found it on YouTube. I, oh, wow. I found it on YouTube uh, and I'll put links, I'll put links to it in the show notes so people can see it. Um, it was, I could, there was like this one shot that I was like, how did you get the camera in the cockpit to look up at the, at the pilot? Like, cause the cameras were not that small back then. No. So it must've been interesting how to get, how you did that. <laughs> I'm not sure what shot you're referring to, but I mean, we were shooting 16 millimeter. And so, so you, you know, might have that little, like a little Bolex or something like that. Right. Probably. It's a smaller, it's a smaller camera, but I mean, if it was on, on Truman, the, the pilot was probably, you know, it was not, um, it was a sync camera. So it was a little bit bigger, but I mean, we, we broke all the rules. Oh, we made. completely. It was, insane. Yeah. it's an insane, look, for people to understand, it's about a bunch of friends taking their, one, another friend of theirs to go skydiving for the first time. And it's, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty risque short film on a 
on a danger <laughs> level. There were several times when, uh, you know, we were lucky nobody died. It was, it, was, it was one of those kind of deals. I mean, the guy who was my production manager, who, you know, I was very close to at the time, he was a pilot. You know, he was 21 years old and he was a pilot. <laughs> so we would go out in the desert um, outside of Lancaster, California. In this old airfield and uh we didn't we he would go and rent a plane each weekend we'd drive up there we stayed in a winnebago and he would go over and rent a plane not telling them what we were doing with it and then we would fly and he would land it on this dirt strip and we would paint the plane uh you know and we would spend half a day painting this plane taking the seats and stuff out so that it looks like truman's plane and then we would shoot all weekend and then like on sunday night We'd have to put all the stuff back in the plane, wash it, and then he'd have to fly it back to this place and turn it in. And we'd never tell him what we were doing with it. Wow. And you know, he was doing stuff like diving down on the location, yeah. dots and stuff, and <laughs> all illegal. And uh, yeah, again, we're very lucky. It's the insanity of youth, isn't it? It really is. The, it's the insanity. Because I did the dumbest things when I was you know, teenager in my early 20s, things that you just like, what? I didn't do that, but <laughs> I did insane, insane things. But let's just, let's just, you know, call a spade a spade. You quit your law practice to go to be a film director. So you're not altogether there at that age either. <laughs> right. Is that a fair, is that a fair statement? It's <laughs> a fair statement. And, and I think one of the problems, especially when you're younger, you know, you think you're immortal. And oh. especially in a movie, you think, Nothing bad can happen because this is make-believe. And because we're doing make-believe, you know, all, all the jeopardy is make-believe too, but it's not. And you forget that. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, we were very, we were very lucky. Now, what was, you know, I always like asking this question, what was the biggest lesson you learned from that first short film? Because that was the first time you directed really, right? I, I had done smaller films at USC, but that was the first big one. They have two they have two levels of film. I don't know what they do now, but they have, it was called 480s and 580s. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it, before you did a 580, you were supposed to have directed a 580. And to do a 480, you were supposed to have worked in a crew position on the short film as either an editor or production manager or, or something, cameraman. Uh, and they gave me a waiver. They gave me a waiver and let me go ahead and direct a 580, having only edited 480. Uh, again, I, you know, I was I was very lucky, um, but they liked the script, the USC. And I mean, that was such an, an amazing place to go to school. Uh, again, I don't know what it's like now, but it was just I learned so much there. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I still remember when I when I first went to see Mort Zarkoff and I'm sitting there in his office and. He's telling me, you know, all the classes you have to take. And you were supposed to start out shooting these non-sync little movies. And I was uh, trying to get him to wave me and let me just skip those and go on to the next level of, of film and stuff. And I'm talking to him and he just stops me and he goes, look, he says, <clears throat> we'll teach you how to make movies here. He said, we want people that have something to say. And that's always stuck with me that... Mm. And I realized finally that the strange collection of personalities that were going to school there, they were all from all different walks of life. I was an attorney. There were people that had been doctors and stuff. 
And for whatever reason, they just looked at their resumes and said, this person might have something to say. And their, their whole attitude is, we'll teach you the technical side, which they did. But then once you got there, you had to figure out how to <clears throat> how to have the wherewithal to say it. In other words, you had to be able to work the system to make your movie. And it was so frustrating at the time because you're competing with all these other people for, with limited resources and limited slots for the movies that were allowed and stuff. And when you get out, you finally realize it's the studio system. What they're teaching you is the studio system, that you have to fight other people and you have to battle other potential filmmakers for those slots. Mm-hmm. And you learn all the tricks, you know, uh, like every weekend when you're making a student film, you had to sign up for equipment out of the out of the, the equipment room. And uh, it was always limited. You know, you could always get the cameras you wanted or the grip gear and stuff like that. So I figured, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do for my cameraman. I hired the guy that ran the equipment room. Smart. (laughs) So we got whatever we wanted. And it's just stuff like that that you learn. Okay, this is how you have to work the system to get what you want. And it goes beyond film school. It goes on to professionally, too. And to me, that was that was, you know, the most important thing I, I think I learned at USC was how 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 to game the system. <laughs> a very useful skill in Hollywood, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, how did you come up with the idea for Red Dawn? Because that was a pretty awesome idea. Just a concept was very, very cool. Yeah. The original, uh, it was titled Ten Soldiers, T-E-N. And, you know, I did it for the... Not only the fact there were 10 people involved, but I also like the idea. And T-I-N, soldiers mm-hmm. as well. Um, but I don't know. I don't really know where it came from. I think at the time what it was was in the early 80s, we were, you know, there was a, there was a lot of drum beating against the Russians and stuff. And people were going, oh, let's go to war with the Ruskies. And I thought, how stupid. And people didn't understand why the Europeans weren't behind us and stuff. And I was like, well, the reason is because they just had a horrible war about 40 years ago and they know what it's like. And you know, it'd been over a hundred years since we'd Americans had had a war in our own backyards. And so we were sort of removed from that experience. And I thought, okay, what would it be like if we actually had to fight a war on our own turf? What would it be like for people to really have to go through that, to fight a guerrilla war like they did in World War II in Europe? And that was really the genesis for the, for the screenplay, where the idea came from. And so I sort of incorporated that into what was going on at the time with the with the Russians and all, and, and it came out the way it did. Uh, you know, John Milius took it, and yeah, I think he made it a little more jingoistic. I, I don't think he did. He did. He made it more jingoistic than what I intended it to be. What what I wrote was more like Lord of the Flies, mm. uh, and John was trying to make more of a political statement. Um, and I just wanted to show this is what war does to people. This is what it would do to you if it happened here. Anyway, yes, John. Uh, John has that. Uh, does does that <laughs> with his films, to say the God least. Bless. God bless him, man. God bless him. Now, when you um when you were doing uh your first feature, uh, Fandango, uh, you hired a little unknown actor at that time. Um, I think Kevin something or other. I I don't even know if he's doing anything anymore. 
Mr. Costner, Kevin Costner, you hired him. And he actually has become, um, in your career, uh, a collaborator for a lot of of, uh, big films that you worked on. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. How what how was it working with um like putting Fandango together and because I remember watching Fandango. There's such a youthful energy. It's created by young filmmakers, acted by young filmmakers, and you can sense that energy there. How was it like putting that whole thing together and also having Big Daddy Spielberg <laughs> like in the shadows? <laughs> Must have been terrifying. <laughs> you know, it was an interesting experience. I mean, it was just kind of handed to me. Okay, go make this movie. And, and But I knew it had to be an expanded version of Proof. So I had to write a movie backwards. You know, I had to, right. how do I take this one sequence and make an entire feature around it? And I mean, unfortunately, I think Stephen expected it to be more like Animal House, which is sort of the quality, a little bit of Proof. But I, I guess at the time, I wanted to do something a little more soulful and and. Like so many filmmakers, you know, it, it was that sort of my first film was that sort of quintessential coming of age story that everybody has to get out of their system before they can move on to something else. And <laughs> that's sort of where I found myself um, as I sat down to write it. Um, um, and, and I think it was more soulful, which I don't think was a bad thing, but I think it was not necessarily what some people expected it to be. Um, and as for Costner, I actually met him when I was in film school because when I was making proof, he came in and read for the part in the student film. He was uh, he was the stage manager at Raleigh Studios in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. He was sweeping floors trying to get gigs as an actor, and he came in and read for the part. And I really liked him, but uh, I cast somebody else, as you can see in proof. <laughs> but I called him and I said, "Look, man, I'm sorry. I I thought you were great. I really liked you, but I don't know why. I, you know, I've cast this other guy." And he was, you know, very gracious and thanked me and all. And then like a couple of years later, when we were actually making Fandango and casting it, he came in again to read for it. And we remembered each other and we talked and, you know, I remembered him very well. And he sat down to read for the part of Gardner Barnes and literally within the first two lines out of his mouth, I knew he was the guy. And did he switch? Uh, did he switch something from two years earlier? How, wh- what is what what made I don't know the difference? What it was. I don't know what it was. It was just I don't know if the, in those couple of years, you know, he'd he'd done a couple of smaller parts. He was, you know, cutting the big chill and stuff. But he was in if I remember correctly, he was a dancing extra in Night Shift. Ron Howard's Night Shift he was he was <laughs> he was. Uh, but there was just, you know, he had he had the quality of the character. And I think it was more he had the quality of the character in the expanded version because Gardner Barnes and Fandango is a much more complete character with a much deeper arc than the character in the short. And maybe that's what it was, was that the character himself had changed a lot in those two years. And he just, he just fit him. And uh, that's when I cast him. Now, when you're going into a film, what is your pre-production process? I mean, do you do you rehearse with actors? Because I know some directors love long rehearsals. Other directors want it on the day. How do you how do you pre? What's your pre-production process? You know, it uh, it's evolved over the years, and for me personally, 
I, when I started out, I would have rehearsals and stuff. And a lot of times it's awkward because people show up, they don't know each other. And I, and ultimately I, I've come to realize that for me, the most valuable thing about rehearsal is not so much learning the lines and stuff. It's really getting to know the other people. Mm. It's, it's creating a rapport uh, and a bit of a shorthand before you show up on the set. So you're just not like showing up with strangers. It's really getting to know each other. You know, yeah, you'll sit there and you talk about the characters and you explore them and you'll do scenes and stuff. But I think it's ludicrous to expect that whatever whatever performance level you achieved in rehearsal is going to be the same thing you get two months later when you're actually doing it on the floor right. because things evolve. And that to me is the, is the greatest benefit of rehearsal is simply getting to know the actors and letting them get to know you. Um, you know, so that you're, there's a familiarity before you start to do it. It's easier to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that, that's what I like about it. Now, there's some actors that, that really like to rehearse to a T. I respect that. You know, that's what they need. Every actor needs something different and others hate rehearsal. They don't want to do it. They just want to show up on the day. And I get that too. And I think personally, that's kind of where I am. I prefer to just discuss the characters, maybe try some things, but don't say, okay, that's it. That take right there, the way you played it, that's it. That's how we're going to do it three months from now. That's BS. And I've also learned in, in performance wise on the set, when you're doing a scene, I don't like to rehearse too much before you shoot. I like to block it. So everybody kind of knows where you're supposed to go. And you kind of get a loose rhythm. And, and I encourage people when you're rehearsing on the day of the shoot to not get up to performance level. I just say, let's just loosely block this and figure out where you're going to be. Because invariably what I find is uh, you burn out. And you can spend a couple hours rehearsing something and they'll give you their good stuff. And then it comes time to shoot and they've already given it to you. So I like to hold it back as much as possible until you actually roll cameras. I prefer to rehearse on camera. Because mm -hmm. you never know, you know, again, every actor is different. Some actors show up and they're just exploding. You know, they've been thinking about it all night. And they're ready to go. And within the first three or four takes, they've given you the best stuff. So if you rehearse, you know, six, eight times, you've lost it. There are other actors that show up and they need a lot of coffee because they're not even remotely there. And it may take them the better part of the day to get up to performance level. They need to do it a lot. And so as a director, you've got to recognize these differences in them. And so the guy that's right there from the get go, that's who you want to cover first, you know, mm -hmm. and the guy that's going to build into it. You want him off camera for half the day until you turn around and start to shoot him. It's just, you know, it just comes from experience. It's just, you learn these things about working with people and you have to respect Everybody's got their own way. And so you're, you're trying to make all those different ways jive for what you're trying to do. It's kind of like what the, what that the director told you in film school. This is the, the most difficult job in the world. <laughs> he was right. It, he was, you know, and it's like <laughs> another thing I tell people, I, I think 50 percent of directing is just having the willingness to subject yourself to the process. Mm. Because it's not everybody can do it. And, and to get through it, you have to want to do it. 
you really have to want to go through that process. I mean, it, you know, like it's not like combat or anything like that, something horrible, mm-hmm. but it's strenuous. It's very strenuous. And uh, you, you kind of have to put yourself in that place and be willing to run the gauntlet, you know, to get there because it is, if you do it right, I think mm-hmm. there's some people that just sit back and just let it happen and don't put themselves into it too much. But I don't, I don't think, I, I think the product is affected by that. It's not. It is not for the weak-hearted, uh, you know, um, or weak-willed, to say the least. Uh, there's so many directors I've known over the years that I've got. I've got my start in post-production, so I had directors sitting on my couch while I edited and color graded and did all this stuff. And you see it. You see the personalities. You see like this guy ain't gonna make it. This was the. And I've had many directors who got that one shot. They got their Fandango. They got their Fandango, and then they're like, you know what? I'm I'm going to go back to being a lawyer. This is not for me. And then there's other ones that like are just just in the mud and you're like he's going to make it or she's going to she's going to keep going. <laughs> it's yeah, it's crazy. It's you have to be a little crazy. You really do. <laughs> I don't know why this story uh, if I can digress from it. Sure, sure. Story, the guy who was uh, my producer on Fandango, Tim Zinema, a great guy. And Tim had been an AD for a long time. He worked on a lot of shows. <laughs> and I won't say which show, but he worked on this one in the South Pacific that was just a disaster. Mm-hmm. The Dino De Laurentiis thing. And, uh, you know, the cast was crazy. And he had actors that would show up in Dino's office and rip their clothes off and scream at him and stuff. And anyway, the director was just losing it. And, and he said, one day, you know the call was like seven or something. Everybody shows up and they can't find the director. They're on an Island. They're on an Island. And they wait and they wait and they wait. Can't find him. And Tim finally just starts walking around the Island. It's not that big. He's looking for the guy. He's not in his quarters or whatever. Finally, he walks around the Island like half an hour. And on the far side of the Island, he finally finds this guy sitting in the sand, looking through binoculars at crabs. <laughs> he lost it. He lost it. Just, We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Completely lost it. Gone. Wow. That's like a Terry Gilliam film. <laughs> like that's something I would see. <laughs> you know, you just, yeah, you know, you don't want to get to that place. You have to be stupid enough to think you're right and, and stupid enough to think, I'm going to power through this. I can do this, you know, and that, uh, you know, if other people can do it, I can do it. Because if you start to doubt yourself, you're dead. You may be wrong, but if you doubt yourself, you're dead. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, So as as you're going through your career, um, your next film, I think, was The Beast, if I remember correctly, which I remember recommending heavily at my video store because no one had heard of it. And uh, I don't think Jason Patrick was a very big star at that point. I mean, he might have just been starting out. But I was like, wow, this is really great. And I got a lot of good, good, good uh, comment cards for my recommendation of The Beast, I remember. And as this is going on, um, Kevin, uh, the other Kevin, Kevin Costner, he's he's kind of growing as a star um, fairly high uh, to the point where he get, comes to Dances with Wolves, which um, cements him as probably one of the biggest movie stars at the time. You also did a little part in Dances with Wolves. Can you tell me what you did or what, what you helped with? I mean, from what I, from what I understand. Yeah, I, I went out there to the Dakotas for a few weeks and did some second. 
It's not a bad second unit director, I'm going to say. We knew each other and, and, and we talked a lot, you know, Kevin and I, you know, spent a a lot of time together. And so he asked me to come out and I did and, and trying to help him out. Uh, And there were rumors, you know, at the time that I was directing the picture stuff. Of course, there's always stuff. No, that wasn't, just wasn't true. But uh, yeah, I worked on the Buffalo hunt and some other stuff. So that's, that's, yeah, that was awesome. And so that, that kind of cemented him as, as a very big movie star. And then right afterwards, I think it was the next year or, or so, um, were you guys already working on Robin Hood, uh, during dances or as after dances, that's when Robin Hood showed up. Yeah. Uh, I was, uh, this was after the beast and I'd been on and off a couple of different things that, you know, didn't happen. And, uh, I was actually on another picture, um, at Universal, we were in prep and, they they'd asked me to come they'd asked me to leave another project to come do that and i was reluctant because they said look this is a 40 million dollar picture which at the time was a lot of money huge and they went no no it's not 40 man i said look it's a 40 million dollar movie and they said look don't worry about it we're making this movie come do it anyway so i did i bailed and i started doing prep on the other show we set up production ops and everything and after about two months finally the budget came in 39 million dollars and they go we're not doing that and i'm like I told you it was going to be $40 million. And yeah, well, you got to bring it down to 30 because we're not doing I was furious because I'd wasted all this time. Literally, the next day, I get this phone call. <clears throat> they said, hey, you want to do Robin Hood? And little did I know there was a there were a couple of competing projects up. There. Yes. One was John McTiernan. So I said, sure. If you're making it, yes. Because I was, I was so angry. So I did. I I bailed and went the next day and said, I'm out of here. And so I went on to this other Robin Hood. And the next day after I got onto that, I get this call from Kevin and, and he goes, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. He says, come on over. So he comes over to my new office and he walks in and he goes, did you know I was on this other Robin Hood with McTiernan? And I went, no. I said, are you serious? He goes, yeah. He said, you know, I was, um, we were talking about doing this other thing. And I said, I had no idea. And he was like, oh, God, okay, well, whatever. Long story short, the producer, who was very wily, realized Costner was doing this. So he asked me to do the Robin Hood. So Kevin bailed on the other one and came on to that Robin Hood. And that's how it came to be. Yeah, there was a couple. I remember it's it's it, it always happens like there's the asteroid movies where there's competing asteroid movies and the Robin Hoods and the volcano yeah. movies. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. You know, and that's happened a couple of times to me. And in fact, just recently, I, I don't know why I had this idea. I thought, God, you know, an interesting subject for a film would be Audie Murphy. And so I read a couple of books on him and stuff. And I was like, God, this would be an interesting story. Literally, the next day I read this thing in, in the trades that somebody was doing an Audie Murphy series based on <laughs> so um i had ben desham on uh on the show as well who is the writer of of um of robin hood for everybody in the audience and uh pen is just one of the sweetest human beings uh, i've ever met i absolutely adore pen and um and i told him the same story i'm going to tell you i was working on the weekends in movie theater so i was working weekdays at a video store working weekends at a movie theater what? I was definitely glutton for punishment. And that year, um, 91 comes out, Robin Hood, me and my friend went to go see it, sat in the front row because it was packed. You couldn't get anything else. Looking up at it, got out, walked right back in and watched it again. It was, 
it was such, we were so enthralled with that movie and it was so much fun. And it was, it was just like such a fun movie. And I have to ask you, like you're, you're taking on a character like Robin Hood, which is a beloved character, you know, obviously the Errol Flynn thing um, from years ago. Um, and he's just such a well-known character. And I know from what I understood, as I've done research on, on that movie years ago, Kevin did not want to wear tights. He's like, I'm not wearing tights in this movie. So you can forget that. How do you approach a character, such an iconic character? And did you feel any just pressure by tackling that kind of character? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, I just plunged into that because I wanted to make a picture. Like I said, I'd been on and off a couple of things. And finally, I was just like, okay, is this going? Is this for real? I'm, I'm in. And, you know, I read the script and I liked the idea of it. I wanted to do some things with it. And, um, yeah, one of the problems was how do we make this not, you know, look ridiculous? Like, right. Um, <laughs> and I'll tell you a couple other things, but first off, when we were two weeks from shooting and the wardrobe guy, you know, is working on it and he wouldn't show me anything. And I'm finally, <laughs> look, I gotta see, I gotta see what you're thinking about. And so he's like, okay, come tomorrow afternoon. I'll have it laid out. So I go into the, warehouse where he's working and he lays all this stuff on the table and it's literally like you know green tights and the little scallop thing like this oh. little green hat with no the oh my god so it's Errol Flynn it's Errol Flynn yeah, yeah. Oh, and I look at him and I'm like this is a joke right where's the real stuff and I could tell from the look on his face no this was it this was the wardrobe oh my god and I was horrified so I fired him. I, 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 as you should, sir. <laughs> and uh, I hired John Bloomfield. And John, literally, he came in with less than two weeks and created an amazing wardrobe. Mm -hmm. John was a genius. I mean, he saved us. You know, he came in, he did something that was classy, you know, that, that really worked. And um, I mean, hats off to John because we were in dire straits. You know, he, he did that. Um, on the movie itself, um, I don't know what it was about it, but, it, you know, as I as I was reading it, something didn't quite it wasn't enough. And as I started to explore the characters and I was trying to find something that would get me excited, I, I realized I didn't want to take things too seriously in places. And consequently, the sheriff evolved the way that he did. Um, and. It was great because when I met when I met Alan Rickman, mm. we were both on the same page that he, you know, he didn't want to play him as some mustache twirling villain. He wanted to do something different, too. And we just completely clicked in that regard. And I think that, you know, that was a lot of what made the picture work was was Alan, you know, um, and that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, he um he was fresh off of uh, that other independent film called Die Hard, uh, <laughs> where, where he he played another amazing villain. So he started that, you know, he went right from I don't know if he did anything in between, but then Die Hard and then Sheriff of Nottingham. It's just like, and I mean, he 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 steals. I mean, I don't want to say steals every scene, but he just eats up every scene he's in. He did. Oh. And it was fun. It was oh. fun because I, you know, I'd say what if you do this? And he goes, okay, but then what if I do this? 
you know, and it just kept building on itself. And it was just, it was, it was fortuitous. Without question. And then you have Morgan Freeman, who's not a slouch. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was, a, it was a good, it was a good times. It was good times. Now that film comes, comes out and uh, explodes. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I mean, it was a huge, huge hit that summer, if I remember correctly. Um, was a it's a massive, massive hit. And and really, you know, Kevin is on a, you know, dances with wolves, Robin Hood, and then um, and then I think the next picture is your next picture, Waterworld, right after that? No, or, I went off no. with Robin Nui. That's right. I'm sorry, I, I thought that was after. Yes, so rap, Rapid Nui. So yeah, after the success of Robin Hood, you went, what attracted you to that story? Because that's such, and it was so beautiful. And it's such a, I never even heard of that story. It was such a great well, nobody, story. Nobody had. And, and that, that was what attracted me to it was just, I'd done some reading about Easter Island and, you know, what happened there so long ago. And from what they understand, you know, they think that Polynesians landed there about the 5th century AD. And they think there were probably... Marquesas. They were fleeing political strife there, and they came. Probably a couple dozen people landed there. They were led by a guy named Hotu Matua. And over the centuries, they populated the island, and uh, it's the most isolated island and on the face of the earth. Populated island. It's twenty three hundred miles west of Chile, fifteen hundred miles east of Pitcairn Island, and they lived there you know, for centuries without any contact that we know of from anywhere else. So I was fascinated by the fact that what they know is that it wasn't even discovered again until 1722 by a Dutch navigator on Easter Sunday. And that's where the name came from, Easter Island. But what they found at the time was this just a barren place, no trees, and all these toppled statues and these people living in caves in the ground, just almost like animals. Um, and I'm like, how did that happen? You know, nobody could understand. But what they what they came to realize historically from the oral history was these descendants of Hotumatua populated the island. They divided ultimately into two different clans, the long ears who were kind of nobility and the short ears who were the commoners. And uh, they basically degraded the island environmentally. They cut all the trees down. They overfished it. Um they overpopulated it. They think at one time there were 20,000 people on this little eight by 11 mile island. Oh, wow. And they ultimately fell into interscene warfare. And, you know, the short ears killed most of the long ears. And there's this one guy named Aronia who's supposed to be the descendant of the long ears who survived. And uh, they had this huge statue building cult. Nobody can understand really why did they build them so big. There was statue building throughout Polynesia, but nobody can understand why they did them so big there. Um, but they cut down all these trees and and cut all these statues out of these craters and rolled them around the island and erected them. There are hundreds of them mm -hmm. in each little community. They're called Moai. So my story, what I wanted to do was try to explore why did they do this? And what is it about human beings that no matter where we are on the planet, there's something inherent in us that makes us destroy ourselves environmentally. Right. You take this isolated group of humanity without any outside influence, and they did it to themselves. So that's kind of what I wanted to explore in the story. 
Um, you know, and coming off of Robin Hood and being hot and thinking I could do anything and, you know, I could overcome any obstacle. <laughs> I decided, oh, we'll go to Easter Island and shoot this. It's the hardest movie I ever made. Wait a minute. Was Rapa Nui is the hardest movie you ever made? Yeah. That's in your filmography, sir. That is a statement and a half. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. So I was because I saw it. I was like, I wonder if they shot this. I mean, it looks like they shot this on Easter Island. And I'm like, you, you, you were crazy enough to go shoot this on Easter Island. Yeah, we were. There's and, so many stories. I won't bore you with it, but it was just, it was nuts. It was, it was insane. And, and, uh, but it's beautiful. And it, it has that, that, that Kevin Reynolds kind of style to it, um, that you, you carry throughout your filmography. Um, and I think it's, and I remember it coming out and, it did. I mean, obviously, it was it, it didn't do well. If I, if I yeah, it <laughs> nothing. It didn't do. It it was it wasn't as as successful as Robin Hood. That's a fair statement. Yes. That's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, it just like was it was it because of lack lack of um you know because you didn't have any major stars and I mean Jason 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 Scott Lee was just off of um uh Dragon right it was before Dragon. Yeah, and Eastside Morales and yeah, yeah it was it. You know, a cast of relative unknowns, but I mean, you know, we had to do it that way to try to cast people that look like Papanuians. Uh, right. And another part of the problem is the vast majority of the public has no idea what happened on Easter Island. I mean, we would show it at screenings and people would ask, well, where is this place? And like, yeah. what, what century was this? And, you know, they had no concept of what we were trying to portray. It could have been on Mars for all they knew. They didn't, they just didn't grasp it at all. Then I don't think, I think in a lot of ways the picture just simply didn't work. You know, it didn't translate from, from screenplay to screen the way I'd hoped it would. Um, it's the most, in some ways I think it was the Island itself because that's the most haunted place I've ever been to. Really? Yeah. It's almost like the Island didn't want us to tell the story. It was, I, I know it sounds ridiculous. No, no, I get you. I get you. It's a creepy place. I mean, God knows what happened in that island. I mean, God knows what kind of, a I mean. Of things, a lot of bad things. A lot of really bad. You can just feel there's a malevolence there that I've never felt anywhere else. And <clears throat> I'll tell you what. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no I, I actually, when I went to New York the uh, last year, as a vac I hadn't been to New York in probably a decade. I went to, to uh, Ground Zero, and when I w literally walking onto Ground Zero, you could just feel. I mean, I, mean, I don't know, want to get hokey pokey on everybody here, but you felt you felt something. There's definitely a heaviness there, so I can imagine that's kind of like it's the only thing I can equate it to. Well, you have to you have to realize these people were isolated. <clears throat> they had no concept about what was out there. To me, it was like our concept about where we are in space because mm -hmm. they had to wonder what's out there. They've been so isolated for hundreds of years. They had no idea what was in the rest of the world, you know? And so they, they conjured up these notions themselves and this religion that they had. And I remember one day there was a guy who was a, uh, it worked with Jacques Cousteau and he, he lived there on the island. He'd married a Rapanui girl. And one day he was taking me around on a tour. We went up to one end of it called the Poiki Peninsula. And the whole place is like an open archaeological site. But we uh, <clears throat> we just pulled off the road near where we'd been shooting recently. 
And he said, come here, I want to show you something. We walk over and he just lifts this rock off the ground. And there's a hole about this big. And he says, come on. So he gets a lamp and we just crawl down in this hole, probably about 15 feet down. And I'm like, where are we going? And it's just so tight. And finally we get down there to the bottom and crawl into this chamber that opens up and he shines this light. And there are 20 human skeletons in there. And it's like this family place where people had buried their dead, you know, for centuries. And he knew, and the Islanders knew it was there, but you're not even aware that it's like everywhere. And Because there's nowhere else to go. Like you're not shipping this off somewhere. Nowhere else to go. And um, I remember the first time I went, I mean, well before shooting, a couple of years before, just explore the place and there were no rules that you could just walk all over it. I mean, there was, you'd walk up to the Ahu, which are the platforms that the Moai sat on and you'd look down inside and there'd be human bones and stuff. And there are no paved roads. So we hired a Jeep and we're driving around <laughs> when we hired the Jeep, you know, from the guy and, uh, and, and he says, when are you going to bring it back? And I go tomorrow. And he goes, okay, we'll just park it there and, and leave the keys in it. I'm like, well, what if somebody steals it? And he goes, where are they going to take it? <laughs> Like it's, it's good point. <laughs> it's, what is it? Eight miles by 10 miles. Exactly. And so, <laughs> That's hilarious. So we, yeah. So we, uh, we're driving around the Island off road, come to this amazing Ahu look inside. And it's just, it's stunning. You could walk up and there are all these human bones and being the asshole that I was, I took this little piece of bone. Oh, no. yeah. it's like the, driving around the Island. It's like the Brady. It's like the Brady Bunch. It's like the Brady Bunch. It's like the Brady Bunch episode when they took the, the totem and now all the bad luck starts happening. To the next, and we get over to the other side of the island later that day and we come over this rise and it's, you know, it's like windy and stuff. We're the only people there. There's nobody around us. And we come over and we're trying to get to this other giant Ahu. And, and you know, it's amazing. But as soon as we come over this hill and down the hill, everything goes still. There's no sound. All the insects stop. The wind stops. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You can see the ocean and it's like a mill pond. It's completely calm. It's just like creepy. We get out, we're walking around and I'm looking around this Ahu and out the corner of my eye, I look up and I see something like a figure, something drop down behind this Ahu. And I'm like, what was that? And I walk around behind it. There's nothing there. Was it a dog? What was it? But this chill just went up my spine. So I said, my buddy that I'm with, my, my agent, Mike, and I said, let's get out of here. So we get back in the Jeep and we drive away. And as we go back over the hill, all the sound starts again. The wind comes up. The insects start. Wow. We get back to town in this little place that we're staying that night the hotel you know it's after dinner we're talking to the lady that runs the place and describing our day and i tell her about this you know what had happened she goes when i finished you take anything did you take anything i said yeah she goes put it back and she explained to me that every month they would get packages from all over the world sent by people who'd taken things that said, I took this rock or I took this bone. And ever since I did, terrible things have been happening to me. And I know it's because I took this. 
And the Polynesians had this thing called mana, which is this power that exists in things. And they believe in it. And I thought it was just BS. And this is why I'm telling it's the most haunted place I've ever been to. So, yeah, I put it back. So it was literally the Brady Bunch episode when they took the toad. <laughs> I've never seen that. But I, I must be. Yeah, yeah, they had it was in Hawaii, it was Hawaii. They took a totem, and and then they start all this bad stuff started happening to them. Wow, I'd heard of stories like that um, in in Hawaii. Even like you take a a rock and you anger the the Hawaiian gods. Yeah, there too. Yeah, yeah, it's really wow. I'm glad I didn't take any rocks when I was in Hawaii. Uh, <laughs> so so um, after Rapa Nui. Um, that you know, because of the massive success of Rapa Nui, they decided to give you one of the most expensive movies ever made. Because <laughs> Hollywood, <laughs> Hollywood knows what they're doing. Apparently, they're like, you know, this. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But uh, but you 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 get onto Waterworld, and um, how did that whole project come together? Was that Kevin leading the charge? Did you lead the charge? How did that whole thing get together? Well, uh, Kevin and I weren't getting along after Robin Hood. I won't even get into it, but we mm -hmm. weren't. And so um, somebody sent me the script, and um, it, I really liked it. And it was Larry Gordon, who at the time was the head of Fox. And, and um, um, he asked me to come in and talk to him, and I did. And sat there, and I was telling him, yeah, I really like this. You know, I think it's a really cool script, this Peter Rader script. Yeah. And uh, Larry goes, well, there's a huge movie star that's really interested in it, too, really wants to do this. I'm like, oh, yeah, who's that? He goes, Kevin Costner. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that. And uh, anyway, long story short, Larry gets us back together again. And uh, we agreed to do it. And uh, that was the beginning. <laughs> heard all the stories. You heard all no. No, I, I know. I, I mean, we, everyone's heard the stories of, 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 you know, the legendary stories of Waterworld. And I've had Peter on the show as well. So I, I heard a lot of a lot of stuff from his point of view. He was like, Alex, I was on set for two or three days. I don't know, you know, however long he was a week or two or whatever. He goes, I just got to sit and watch some of the stuff. But again, just like Easter Island, like, hey, let's go shoot on Easter Island. You said, hey, let's go shoot this in the ocean, um, which. I get it. Makes sense. But I guess you underestimated the power of nature and and everything. How how what was that like being in the middle of that storm? Literally and figuratively. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when I first decided that, uh, again, you're still in that mode as a uh, you know, young filmmaker, like I can overcome anything. Mm -hmm. you, know, you throw at me, I'll figure it out. and I'll make it work. But I called Steven Spielberg. Uh, when I decided I want to do this and, and I asked him, I said, uh, look, there's this project Waterworld. It's all set on the, on the ocean. And, you know, you did jaws and do I, do I really want to do this? And he goes, you may, he said, I would never work on the water again. And I'm like, okay. And, uh, you know, I didn't heed his advice and, uh, I went in and saw Sid Scheinberg, who was the head of universal. Mm -hmm. who, did the show and uh, I'm talking to him and I'm like, you know, we're talking about the budget and all this stuff. And I go, Sid, you know, we're going to be responsible and stuff. But, you know, I was talking to Steven and um, Steven tells me that the original schedule on Jaws was 55 days <laughs> and they ended up shooting 155 days. 
And Sid just sits there for a second. He goes, I don't remember the schedule, but I do know they went a hundred percent over budget. Wow. Right, okay. So I, I, you know, I hope you remember that. He goes, Oh, I do. And they were, they were aware of the, you know, the, the danger dangers of what could happen shooting on the water. And, and the thing that annoys me about people, you know, criticize the movie and stuff is they, you know, there a lot of people felt like we were just being profligate that we just went out there and we were just, you know, all sitting around eating bonbons and drinking, you know, pina coladas. <laughs> and we weren't, uh, it was, it was very tough, you know, yes, we were, you know, very well taken care of, but it was a very, very difficult picture. But, Anybody that shoots on the water like that is going to encounter it. And consequently, you know, 25 years later, that's why people do CGI. I, I don't know if that people will ever do something like that again, because so much of what we did was in camera. It was not yeah. CGI. And you just don't appreciate the difficulty. It's just stuff you take for granted where, you know, you set up a shot. You've got a camera boat. You've got somebody on a boat in front of you. And then you've got background boats. You've got a horizon behind because you're always having to shoot so that you've got a clean horizon to maintain the notion that, you know, there's no land. <clears throat> so we picked the west coast of the big island of Hawaii where there was like a 160 degree view out to open water, relatively uh, little traffic. That's where we chose to shoot. But when you set up a shot that looks very simple in the in the film, like I was just describing, you don't realize that. They're currents. And so you set the camera up and your subject boat here in the background, they're all drifting differently. So you can't hold a frame. So right. it's ever to try to move things back into frame just to hold a frame. Ultimately, there were times where if the currents were really bad, you can't turn around and shoot towards land. You always have to shoot out toward the water. And sometimes the sun would be low and it's looking right. You're looking right into the sun. So you have to find all these variations for how you can get around that. There were times where we'd have to send divers down, attach a line to the boat we're trying to shoot, anchor it to the bottom on a pulley where they could move it and pull it to try to maintain sun control over the boat that was in front of camera. And so when you see it on film, you go, eh, it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a boat and there's some background behind it. You don't realize what it took to do something that would be relatively simple on land to do it on water like that. And every day was like that. Every day. And, and, and everything you just described could be done in about five or 10 minutes. It doesn't take a long time to send the divers down, lock in the boat, you control, you know, it, it, it just, what, when, when you're talking about Steven and Jaws, I mean, he had one boat and a mechanical shark. You had like a floating city and it seemed to me, I know it wasn't hundreds, but it seemed like, you know, 20, 30, 40 support vehicles whether it be you know uh, land um, water skis or boats or the it was it was what peter said it's mad max on the water it's that we had a navy, we had a, navy. We wow. had a whole department that did nothing but run boats i mean it, you think about it we had this atoll was anchored about a mile offshore outside of a harbor called Kauaiha. literally the, the big floating atoll and there were multiple lines from that went down to the bottom it was about 100 feet deep and they anchored it on the bottom they had to otherwise it would drift away and it would rotate on those lines but when you go out there when you're doing a big scene like a battle scene where you've got hundreds of extras and you've got special effects and stuff you don't realize okay you've got a whole barge that's nothing but porta potties 
you know? And so you get up in the morning, you have to run all those people through wardrobe. You have to feed them. <sighs> you have to put them on boats and ferry them out to the atoll, get them in position for whatever shots you're doing. And then once you shoot for a little bit, it's lunchtime. And so then you have to ferry right. all those people back into shore to feed them. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And then go back out for the afternoon. And that's, it, it's just incredibly cumbersome. I, I'm just baffled that the studio agreed to go down this road. I mean, everybody knew, like, there's no way you can make a day. Did you ever make a day? Like, it's, it's out of your control. A few times, yeah. But <laughs> I, original, I think our original schedule was... I think we finally agreed like, like maybe 120 days. And I think, we should, you know, all of them shot 170 days. Jesus. That's actually impressive. <laughs> that you got it. No, I mean, you know, I defy anybody else to, you know, overcome it, do, do what I think we did. It was, uh, it was tough. Like I said, and it's all, most of it's in camera. Yes, there are effects in the show, but most of what you see was shot in camera. And, and I heard, there, and if I remember correctly, there was a, was there a hurricane that destroyed a whole bunch of sets or something happened like that? You know, that was, that was the rumor that the whole atoll sunk. Uh -huh. That's true. Yes, oh, okay. we had, we had, a, we had an earthquake off the coast of Japan once one morning. We had to like move everybody in shore up high because we didn't know if there was going to be a tsunami or not. It didn't know what happened. <laughs> Thank God. We lost, we lost another half day just on that. Um, but. The, the thing that did sink, there's one sequence where the Mariner approaches. It's just, it looks like this big, oh, I don't know. It's like a big mushroom sticking up out of the water. It's a trading post. And <laughs> the smokers and Dennis Hopper have arrived there and they've killed everybody and they've rigged their arms to wave and stuff. And we shot that. That sank. That sank. But it was not the, the atoll. Okay. So, all right. So I remember at that time that the press, and the town crucified the movie before a frame of it was even shown to people. It, you were being, I mean, it was, and I remember being, I was, I was there. I remember just from a distance looking at it and going, my God, they're pounding on poor Kevin Reynolds on this. Like, and I, so how, how do you direct? Because I'm assuming you were aware of this. Oh, yeah. So how do you direct? How do you deal with that kind of stress? It's. It's very difficult. It's not, it, it's my least favorite filmmaking because there's so many forces working on you. You're, you're, you really can't be flexible because when you have a shooting day that costs $300,000, <sighs> you know, you can't change your mind about things. Right. You have to kind of stick with the plan, even if you get on set and go, ah, well, that doesn't work that well. But if we change that, we lose a half a day and we can't afford to do that again. So you can't be flexible and you've got all these people looking over your shoulder, you know, and I understand because it's a hell of a lot of money, <laughs> but it's, it's not a fun way to work. It's, it's just, it's not a fun way to work. I'll, I'll tell you one story that kind of summed up the whole press thing for me. Cause we had, you know, guys would show up speed boats and try to combine and shoot it and stuff and all these inflammatory things and exaggerations. <laughs> one day the, uh, we were shooting a sequence outside the harbor on the catamaran 
and I had a cam- the camera guys up on the mast of it, about 40 feet up, two guys. And I was trying to do a shot where you're looking down on the activity down below and then tilt up to the horizon. And we're anchored offshore and the swell comes up and the catamaran starts kind of going like this. And I look over and the mast is kind of bending a little bit like that. And so I turned to the boat guy, boat master, and I said, Bruno, is this safe? And he looks up at it and goes, no. <laughs> okay, well, we have to wrap out of this and go inside because we can't have these two guys fall off here. So we did. We had to wrap, go back inside the harbor, shoot something else, lose another half day. Okay, the next day, our publicist came <clears throat> from the States, some journalist who goes, okay, I've had this confirmed by two sources, so don't lie to me. I want you to tell me about the two camera guys that were killed in the accident yesterday. He goes, what? He goes, don't lie to us. We know this happened and you guys are covering up. So tell us the truth. We know you lost two people in an accident. yesterday. It didn't happen. That was the kind of stuff that went on. Oh my God. I can't look directing a film is arguably one of the most stressful things a human being can do. And then again, war and all of that, I understand. And the creative arts, absolutely one of the most difficult things you can do. Right. Working in Hollywood in the studio system is probably one of the most difficult things you can do. Working with a $150, $175 million budget on your shoulders and the stress of that is one of the most difficult things you can do. And then having to deal with that kind of lunacy. I, I, I mean, you must have, you, it's kind of like a presidency, like when you see one come in and then four years later, eight years later, they, they've aged 50 years. I'd have to imagine that that happened to you at the end of this process. It does. It does. And it changes you, you know, it really changes you and your outlook and all. And, uh, you know, after that, I, I don't really like those kind of movies, to mm-hmm. be honest. They're not fun. They're just not fun. And the making of them or the kind of story of, or the storytelling aspect of it? The story is interesting, but the making of them is so difficult and it's not as organic. I prefer smaller pictures where you have more control. Mm-hmm. You can be more flexible than, than big ones like that. I mean, you still see it today. I mean, all these big superhero movies and stuff, they're very much like that. You know, but it's all it's CG. A, but it's a lot of CG now. It's all CG, but it's still it's it's hundreds of millions of dollars and it's filmmaking by committee. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's just not that organic. Some people thrive on that and they like it. I'm not one of those people. I, I prefer to do uh, smaller things where you're. It's more your do- domain. So the movie comes out and everyone's like, it's the biggest bomb in history and all this stuff, which was such, you know, for to use a term of, of our of our time, fake news, uh, <laughs> because it ended up actually doing well and and then i was talking to peter and he said it's one of the most valuable ips and profitable ips in the entire catalog of universal studios right so do you feel a little vindicated (laughs) yeah i mean i look at some there are pictures that were much people lost they lost a lot more money than Waterworld. it's just once you sort of get tainted with oh yeah you know, you can't lose that. It's very difficult. I mean, Hollywood, it's more interesting that, that something's controversial and it's going bad than to hear that everything's going well. well That's boring. It's more interesting, of course. That's, it's more interesting. And so they thrive on that. And 
somebody told me the first time they screened a picture in New York or something for critics and they walked out and this one critic was so disappointed and he goes, well, it didn't suck. And that was his comment. <laughs> right. Like they wanted it to be the worst. It so play. <laughs> horrible. And he was really disappointed. he's disappointed that it was ah, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. <laughs> I actually, I, I watched it when I watched it. I watched it again recently. It's fun. It's a fun. It's, it's just a fun film. It's just a good, good adventure film. Dennis Hopper, again, chews up <laughs> the scenery. You're being kind. I mean, there are a lot of problems with it. I know, but you got to, I know, I, I look, I, under, I understand, look, I mean, but it's enjoy, I look, I enjoyed it. It's an enjoyable film. Um, and it's a, just a good, fun adventure, um, uh, adventure film. But it is, it's one of those films that is historically, you know, tainted. But the truth, and that's what I try to do, even in my little way, with Peter's interview and now with yours, I'm like, no, it's arguably one of the most profitable IPs that they have. And I think they're working, I know you can't say yay or nay, but I heard they're working on trying to do something new with it because it's a it's a great ip <laughs> i you know i don't know if they're gonna do another picture or not you know they made a fortune off the ride oh, oh yeah oh you know it's been going for 25 years now it's still it's still there i've i've seen that show probably three four five times and maybe more in my in my life and it's still going um now um i i, I have to ask you because you've had both you've had extreme highs in this business and you've had extreme lows how do you deal with that as a creative professional? Like, as a, like I mean, because it's being, a, being an artist and being a creative in general is tough. <laughs> but, you know, I'm just curious, how do you deal with it? You know, I think you just have to have something inside you that makes you want to continue to tell stories so badly that, as I said before, that you're willing to subject yourself to the process. Mm. And I don't know why. Maybe it's a masochistic thing. Uh, you know, there are probably certainly better ways to make a living, but it's a compulsion, I, I guess. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I, I equate it to uh, an illness is once you get bitten by that bug, I always said I've said this a million times. I was like, if you get if you get bitten by the bug, you are infected, and it will never go away. It will flare up, and it yeah. can, and it can go dormant for thirty years. Because I got I got guys reaching out to me who are in their sixties and like, look, I just retired, but I really want to do is direct. So I, yeah. I <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> and I'm like, how do I start? You know, I've been a doctor all my life, but I really just want to tell stories. And I'm like, it, they got bitten. It was suppressed for 30 odd years and now it's, it's flared up. It never, ever goes away. And it's, it's fascinating that, that whole thing. Now, one of your, one of the films in your uh, filmography that I, I think is not as, you know, not as known is 187. I absolutely loved 187. Um, and when I was directing some, uh, some of my directing work, I actually would bring in my DPs and we would watch 187 because some of the stuff that you did in that, uh, with the color grading choices you did for the time was pretty, this is, was this pre, I think this was pre DI, right? Yeah. It was pre DI. So there was no, no digital color grading. So you were doing stuff in camera. So it was really remarkable. How did you, uh, what, what guided you in your color grading choices in that film? Cause it's pretty, pretty, uh, intense. 
Well, I mean, coming off of Waterworld, as I said, which was not fun, I wanted to do something that was more experimental, where we could just really take a lot of chances, you know, creatively. And uh, God bless them. I mean, it was Mel Gibson's company, Icon, that came to me with the project. And I have to say, you know, Mel's had all kinds of problems. So, but he was, he was maybe the greatest producer I've ever worked with. He was, he could not have been more supportive and nicer, uh, you know, in the, in the way he let me make that picture. He was wonderful. Um, and so we were able to take a lot of chances and I brought in a young guy named Erickson core is DP. And we just went to town. We, we looked at every scene as an opportunity to do something different, you know, from color grading, we use a lot of swing and tilt lenses to mm-hmm. shoot. In the frame where some stuff's out of focus and some stuff's sharp. Mm-hmm. There's a sequence where in a classroom, uh, we wanted to we wanted to uh, show one of the characters like on a on a, a TV uh, like on a TV sh- um, yeah TV uh, TV monitor yeah yeah TV monitor. So Erickson went out and bought a Fisher Price toy camera, and that's what we shot it with, and then took that image and translated it to film. And so we just did a lot of stuff like that. And it was really exciting and it was yeah. really it was invigorating and it just kind of rekindled, you know, a lot of uh, uh, creative energy that I'd lost doing Waterworld. Uh, that picture didn't do, it didn't do any business, but I'm very proud of it. Uh, Sam Jackson was great. That was his first uh, starring role. Like his first, like, you know, he was the leading character in it. Like it was well, his- I mean, he'd he'd done Pulp Fiction already, but it, that, but it wasn't he was it wasn't like he, it wasn't the Sam Jackson show. Like it was he was the star of that movie, yeah. and and I and I like it because I mean you know Sam has sort of a persona that everybody knows him for, and he really sort of went against character, yeah, in that role, and he wanted to do it. He came to us. He wanted to do it, and I'm like great. And he was he was wonderful to work with. He's a total pro. Now, um, uh, there was that one scene, by the way, in, in one eight seven, that deer, deer hunter scene. How do you, how did you approach that? Cause that's intense, intense. I just rewatched it the other day. Such an intense scene. Yeah. How do you, yeah. how do you like directing a scene like that? Cause both those actors, uh, both Sam and I forgot, um, Clifton. Cliff. Yeah. He, yeah. so amazing. There's just, just two juggernauts. Uh, in acting, how do you direct a scene like that? You know, it's they. I still remember the day we shot that. There was so much energy on set. I mean, everybody was amped up, really amped up, and everybody. I mean, not just the actors, but all the support personnel, the camera, everybody, and everybody. It was great because you could just see everybody kind of sitting back delicately and watching it unfold and trying to be supportive, you know, in their own way. I mean, from makeup to effects, everything. Everybody was really into it. You know, a lot of times when you shoot, sometimes people don't care. They just kind of show up and do their job. But everybody was really into that scene. And you feel it. You feel it. And it really imbued the moment with that energy. And and uh, that's why you do pictures is for those kind of occasions, you know, mm-hmm. kind of energy to experience that. That's awesome. Um, and there was one film uh, in your filmography that I absolutely just adore, which is Count of Monte Cristo. I oh, absolutely 
adore Condor Mike. We just, my wife and I just watched it, I think probably like two or three months ago. We watch it every few years because it's such a wonderfully, not, it's a, I mean, obviously the story, Dumas did okay. Um, you know, it's, you, you, I mean, he's all right. He's all right. But um, I, I'm going to give you all the credit. No, um, <laughs> but it's such a fantastic story. And the way that, that the actors and uh, Richard Harris and uh, Jim Caviezel and, and Louis Guzman, <laughs> I mean, just so brilliantly done. What about the revenge story? In not only in cinema but in literature is so satisfying. Why do we love watching that? Because obviously, I think Count of Monte Cristo is the ultimate, just wonderfully constructed revenge story. What is it about about it that just draws well, us in? Everybody has things that go on in their lives that they'd like revenge for, and so they can sort of vicariously appreciate someone who managed to get it. And that's why I think people empathize so much with characters who've been so wronged mm -hmm. turn the tables and, on the people that have done it to them because i think everybody feels like i've been wronged in some way and i would love to do that too and i think that's why it's so appealing to an audience um that was that was a tough one i mean jay walpert the guy that, that did the adaptation did a really fine job he changed a lot of things and there are a lot of people that complain because they say well this film is not the book it's not and, my attitude is it can't be. I mean, the, the book is 1,500 pages long. It's like, how long did it take you to read the book? And they'll go, well, it took me a week. And I'm like, yeah, well, we didn't have a week to tell the story. So we had two hours. So necessarily you have to compress and combine and, and do things to try to keep the spirit of it. You know, it's just a necessity. And so because of that, you're going to leave a lot of people's favorite moments out. Of course. You know? Everybody's different. Everybody, well, you left this out or you left that. Yes, I'm sorry. But we had to pick and choose because, as I said, we only had two hours. The screenplay is 100 pages, 120 pages. It's not 1,500 pages. So, you know, of necessity, that's what happens when you take a novel and turn it into a, into a film. And then um, you also did um, The Hatfields and McCoys, which you reunited with. Uh, Mr. Costner, what, first of all, I loved it. I saw it in, on the History Channel when it came out, and I was just like, this is awesome. How, how was it just working with uh, an old friend, I guess, back, you know, back then? It was great. I mean, you know, we had a shorthand. You know, we knew each other and could communicate in a way that you can't always communicate with other people just because of, you know, the past and uh, the relationship and all. But that was... Hatfields and McCoys, that was a special production. It was a great cast. Oh, Bill Paxton. Oh, God, he was amazing. Bill Paxton. And I have to thank, you know, Fern Champion, who was our casting director in the Hubbards, uh, from Hubbard Casting in London, you know, put together a fabulous cast. Everybody was good. Um, and, and that was what was great. And, and it was another one of those shows that you hope for. I mean, we shot in Romania. We're Romanian crew. And they were so eager and so wanted to prove themselves and they were just wonderful. And, and it was, uh, everybody really got into it and wanted it to do well. Um, and it was a real team. Um, and you know, I'll always remember that one fondly. Yeah. You know? And, 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 and one thing to be said, I mean, obviously you've had your up and downs with uh, Kevin uh, over the years. Um, I, when I saw you guys get back together again for Hatfields and McCoys, I was like, Okay, they they've they've you know they're they're working together again. Is, is there something to be said about um, 
about just getting older and and just you know figuring things out because there's things like I'm 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 definitely I mean I'm I'm older but I'm not uh, you know I'm not older older let's say it depends what you say I'm I'm getting into the weeds here my daughters think I'm ancient so there you go um they're like daddy when Titanic came out it was 97 was that before you were born I'm like oh Jesus Christ <laughs> I wish it was uh <laughs> I was yeah. born in 97 <laughs> but um but how just as a director, um, the things you do as a young director. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, you aged your filmography changes. There's things that got me excited in my 20s as far as storytelling is concerned that I, I wouldn't even think of doing today because it's just not the kind of stories I want to tell. How can you talk a little bit about that whole process and then just also working Again, like we, we talked a little bit about it, but just like understanding the maturity of, of, of an old friend, regardless of the ups and downs of relationships. Yeah, you evolve, you know, I mean, like everybody does. As you get older, you kind of mellow uh, in a lot of ways and things, as you said, that were extremely important to you 30 years ago aren't so important now. And you have more perspective. Uh, and, and that enables you to approach things, I think, in a more objective way. The downside is, I think there's a lot to be said when you're young of being kind of young and stupid and enthusiastic and, <laughs> and blindly going into things and finding stuff out of your own stupidity. You lose that as you get older. Mm -hmm. You know, you do you do kind of rely on experience more. Um, and so it's a balance. It's a balance of, of trying to realize, OK. It's important to remember the prior experiences and to not repeat mistakes, but at the same time, be open uh, to new experiences and new ways of doing things to just keep yourself fresh. Otherwise you get ossified because uh, God knows things change, especially in the film business. I mean, it is so not what it, it was <laughs> when I started today. It's oh, completely no. different, completely different. It's always evolved. I mean, look, you know, a hundred years ago, we we're doing silent pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's always evolved. I'm I'm a little disturbed by what it's become now. Uh, it's it, I don't, you know, and I, I'm sure I sound like a geezer when I'm <laughs> talking about how, you know, well, when I was doing it, you know, it was much more exciting, and we didn't do it that way, and it, it changes. It changes. Yeah, no question, and it's changing now by by the month. Be like. I, every every month there's something new happening because of what happened with COVID, what's happening with covid and all that stuff but up until the 80s really the business hadn't changed a whole lot like it was pretty the 90s it was the 80 when vhs showed up when vhs showed up that started the change it did it did but i mean you know even the 90s the studios were healthy we were still shooting on film mm -hmm. uh, the Attitudes of the agencies and all had not really changed that much. People saw it as a, a golden time and anything was possible. There's a lot of fear now. There's a lot of fear because uh, things are not as lucrative as they once were. Um, sadly, I think theatrical cinema is, is dying. It's, I mean, you you can you can pretend that it's not, and, and you know, God bless Chris Nolan and his. <laughs> You know, and his adherence to film as a medium, I mean, real film, mm -hmm. but it's, it's going away. You know, it, it, the digital age is here um, and you have to you have to be flexible enough to realize that technology changes and 
this is the way it's going to be in the future. And theatrical is just, it's dying. There will still be showcase pictures out there, but in terms of the way the vast majority of the public uh, consumes their content, that's forever changed. And it's, it's going, it's streaming inside the home. That's where it's going now. And I don't think we're going back. Uh, now I'm going to ask you a few questions. I ask all my guests. Um, what is the one thing you wish you could tell your younger self? <laughs> 25 words or less. <laughs> you can go 26. <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, boy. <laughs> I First guess thing. be more be more flexible. Be more flexible. That's yeah. I always I always said my answer is always be patient because it's not gonna it's not gonna happen as fast as you think it's gonna happen. Un, un, you you it did. You actually didn't move as fast as <laughs> you thought yeah. it was gonna happen. Yeah, I mean it's look. I've had a great ride, and you know nobody does it perfectly. And yes, there are things I wish I'd done differently. Mm -hmm as I'm sure everybody does, but I've been incredibly fortunate, you know, to, to get to do the things that I've been allowed to do. Uh, because there's so many people that would like to be in my shoes and have the same opportunities and they're not able to. So I'm, I'm extremely grateful for all that's been handed to me. Um, now, what advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break into the business today? It's tougher than ever. It's the toughest job in the world. Uh, <laughs> Dimitri said, but don't let that stop you because you have to take the attitude. Somebody says, look, only 1% of people make it in the business, succeed. You have to approach it and believe that you're that 1%. It's insanity. But it's, it's insane. <laughs> you may not be, and the odds are against you, you know, but you have to believe you're the guy that's going to make it because if you don't, you won't. And it, you will get ground up and you may get beaten down, but if you're going to try to do it and you want to go down that path and even have a chance at making it, you have to have that attitude. Can you, can you, um, I want to, I want to say one thing I always tell the people and I want to see what you think about it. I tell these young filmmakers coming up all the time, I go, look, I want to prepare you for the realities of the business. Uh, I have a lot of shrapnel, different shrapnel than you, but I have shrapnel from 25 years of being in the business. Yeah. Um, you're going to get punched in the face. I don't care who you are, everybody, anybody you look up to in the business, from Spielberg to Nolan to Fincher to Kubrick, everybody got punched in the face, not once, over repeat, and over, over, and over and I want you to be prepared for the punch because a lot of times I see these young filmmakers who have these stars in their eyes. You know it. We, we all, I was that. You, you had those stars, and, I mean, to a certain extent as well. And they don't see the punch coming. And when the punch comes, sometimes it knocks them out for good. Like I said earlier, I want them to be able to take that punch. And then maybe as you get older, and I think you would agree with me, occasionally you learn how to duck. <laughs> You do. You get smarter. But it all goes back to, as I said originally, you have to be willing to subject yourself to the process. That's a great That's line. what you have to do. And you have to realize, as you said, you're going to get punched repeatedly. 
and you'll get up and you'll get blindsided because you won't be paying attention because you're focused on what you're trying to do and you'll get hit again and you'll get knocked down, but you have to get up. And that's the career that you've chosen if you're going to do this. It's a battle royale every day <laughs> for the entire career. And you have to ask yourself, am I willing to do that? Is it worth it to me? Do I really want to tell stories badly enough to subject myself to that? And if the answer is yeah, then do it. If you if you waver and if you're not sure, don't go down that road because you'll be destroyed. And last question, and arguably the most difficult one, three of your favorite films of all time. <laughs> three that come to your mind right now. Three that come to your mind right now. Right now. I always say this because the one I remember had the most profound effect on me originally was Dr. Zhivago. I've yeah. always loved, I've always loved David Lane, but I still remember how that picture made me feel. And I guess maybe the second one uh, is probably 2001. Space and then the next two that immediately came to mind, probably Bush Cats and Sundance Kid. And the, I'll say the fourth one, Badlands, Terrence Malick. Yes, Badlands. Those are good, good, good choices, sir. Good. That's good. off the top of my head. There's lots of them, but those those four. I can go down a Kubrick uh, rabbit hole with you anytime. I oh Jesus. Um, but Kevin, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor talking to you and and talking shop with you. So thank you for for enriching my life with your films over the course of your career and for everything you do, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's it's fun to sit down and 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 to relive these things with someone that can understand. <laughs> thank you, my friend. I want to thank Kevin so much for coming on the show and sharing his filmmaking journey with the tribe. Thank you so much, Kevin. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 256. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 